one, one area that uh, real estate investors and entrepreneurs generally, I think a lot of business owners struggle with understanding is the whole copyright, patent, trademark area. And that's why I invited my guest today, Nick Gwynn, onto the podcast because Nick is a trademark and a patent lawyer in the US, but a lot of what he shares in our conversation, you know, general advice that applies to those kind of trademarks and copyright across Canada and elsewhere. And Nick really got into some interesting suggestions and insights around this whole topic that I think you're going to find particularly helpful. Uh, it certainly got me thinking about thing in terms of product services and even a company name. So I think you're going to find this very insightful and useful. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Personally Brandtastic podcast, where we help you build your personal brand and business so that people can find you easily, want to work with you, and can't wait to refer you. My name is Paul Kopkin, and every day I work with real estate investors, professionals, and business owners who want to stand out from the crowd and attract more of the right opportunities without feeling inauthentic or spending all day doing it. It's all about communicating how personally brandtastic you are. Because marketing is how to get their attention, but personal branding is why they choose you. Now, back to the show. Nick, thank you for joining us today. I know you're in probably slightly warmer climes than we are at the moment which, as we're recording this. I think you, you said you're down in San Antonio, Texas. But, uh, and we're going to be talking about you know, intellectual property, copyright, trademarks. And I think this is a big area that people get very confused by. And I'm, I'll put my hand up and say I'm probably, probably one of them as well. And the two things that I come across a lot, and I'm sure a lot of people listening is the same, is the copyright symbol and the TM symbol or trademark symbol. So maybe if you kind of kick off and give us a little bit of a sense of what those two things are, are they different? And then and what do they mean? And then we can kind of continue the conversation from there. Sure thing, Paul. So as an intellectual property attorney, I wear several hats and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. And in fact, when clients meet with me and they say, Nick, this is what we're doing or this is what we want to do. I try to account for, okay, how can we best protect or enforce or defend your rights, depending on you know, what it is you're trying to do? And copyrights protect or essentially relate to works of art. Now, they don't necessarily have to be masterpieces or beautiful works of art. If someone took guano, threw it on a wall and said, it's art, that's mine, you know, it could be subject to copyright protection. But even things like source code and computer programs can be protected via copyright. TM is a shorthand for trademark. Trademarks are source identifiers, names, logos, taglines, and there's other things that can serve as trademarks, but at high level, that's what that is. And there's actually a different, another symbol that can be used in connection with trademarks, the circle R. And the difference between the circle R and the TM is that the TM is common law usage. You, you are using a trademark. You want people to associate with you, so you can use the TM. You don't need government approval. The circle R is reserved for those who have registered their trademark with, with a governmental agency like the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. It copyrights the circle C that you might see is, is akin to the TM. You don't need to register. You should register your copyright, but you don't need to register to use the circle C. Okay. And the copyright C could also apply to written word. Is that right? Or is that not? That's correct. So. Okay. Um, if you write an article, a magazine, or a book, you could and probably should put the circle C on your writing. 
if you're a photographer or other types of visual artist, you should have used the circle C. If you create a sculpture, if you have musical recordings, any of these different types of works, you'd probably use the circle C. There, there's an exception for musical works where you might do a circle P, but that's, we don't need to get bogged down in the weeds. Okay, <laughs> right. And for people listening, you're based in the US, but a lot of what you're saying, whilst you're not practicing in Canada, applies in Canada and applies across the world, I guess. High level, right. these general themes and topics people should be thinking about and they can appreciate them in their countries. But in terms of, I, I wouldn't construe, certainly wouldn't construe it as formal legal advice for anyone right. listening. But right. If you're in another jurisdiction like Canada or the UK or somewhere else, I'd probably want to speak with a, an attorney or a barrister or solicitor in your jurisdiction. Right. And why is it important for people to use those symbols on their work? So at a high level, you want to put the public on notice that you are asserting rights in that intellectual property asset, whether it's your name or logo, or it's the work of art that you've created. There's a practical consequence. You're telling people, you know, and hopefully they're not going to try to copy and paste your work and put it somewhere else. I'll tell you, Paul, it's I see more and more people and businesses who are getting in trouble for copying and pasting photographs that they find online and they use it on their social media and they use it on their website. Harm, often harmless, haphazard incidents that they weren't even, they meant no harm. And someone discovers it and they, they say, we want a lot of money from you. And I think had the original person or the person who owned the copyright used the circle C, I suspect those people probably wouldn't have copied and pasted or they probably would have been less likely to. So there's the practical side of it serving as a deterrent. But from a legal standpoint in the United States, when you use those symbols, you can potentially increase your damages award or increase your likelihood of recovery because you can tell the court, look, we went out of our way to tell the public that this was ours that we owned it and they still disregarded our notice anyway. Right. And I think the challenge is, uh, and I'm going to share a kind of personal story. So when you're searching on Google and somebody sees an image they want to use on social media or in a blog post, there probably isn't a copyright directly attached to that. I mean, maybe in the back end, but I mean, somebody's just copy, copy, paste or download. They're probably not even seeing that and thinking that's okay. And I had a situation where I did a blog post a number of years ago and I used an image of Canada's prime minister and it was taken by a photographer for one of the international newspapers. And I, a few months later, I got a letter saying, you've used our image, you owe us X, X, Y, Z. And I thought, oh, this is a scam. And I ignored it the first time. <laughs> And to my detriment, because the second time it got a little bit more, you know, forceful. And so I paid, I ended up having to pay, which was fair because I'd misused it. I completely unknowingly from a, you know, there was no intent, you know, bad intent meant, but it really opened my eyes to the fact that just because it's on Google or just because we find it online does not mean you, you can use it. Correct. That's right. Yeah. So you have to be very careful about that. And that is such a common problem. And people are, you know, getting in trouble. And you may get a demand that says you owe us a thousand dollars or you owe us ten thousand or sometimes it's more. And hopefully you settle for much less or resolve right. it. But it's definitely an inconvenience and often a costly one. In terms of how it appears, sometimes it, the copyright notice may appear as a watermark on the image, but often it doesn't, as you alluded mm. to. And especially if you've done a Google search 
photographs of Justin Trudeau. And, you know, oh, I like this photo. I'll copy and paste it from Google Images. You know, you may not have even gone to the website where it was loaded to see that there was a copyright notice. And a few months later, you're in trouble. Right. You yeah, just have, always have to, people need to be very careful about that. And what, what mistakes do you see people doing around this whole idea of copyright or trademark? Well, what you just described has become a, a, a quite a problem as of late. You know, I think there's folks that there's photographers, artists, other business owners who I think are very careful about their copyrights and I think are well-intentioned wanting to prevent people from just willy-nilly copying their photos and try to resolve it quickly. But there has developed a cottage industry of businesses that kind of try to set people up for these mistakes. And they have teams that are investigating, scouring the internet for the Pauls and others among us who've copied and pasted the image. They send the demand letter and that's their business model. And it's just more reason to be very careful. So to, to give you an example, in the last several months, last year or so, I've increased my social media presence with you know Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. And I have, I, I have someone who assists me with a lot of that work. And we're, he's under very clear instruction. Then he understands, I've made it very clear why, that if you're going to use an image we need permission from the person who owns the image. We're not just going to willy-nilly copy and paste images from the web. And so we'll go to websites where we either have a subscription or there's it's in the public domain where it's indicated that we can copy and paste. But just simply going on Google and copying and pasting the image that we like, we're not going to do that. Because not only could I be in trouble for copying and pasting an image that I found, I could be responsible for an image that he pulls, you know, or someone else for my team pulls. And, you know, at anywhere from several hundred dollars to several thousand dollars per mistake, that's not fun to deal with. So I highly encourage people to be very careful about that, both personally and in instructing the teams that they work with. Great suggestion. And funnily enough, the type of company you mentioned, they were trawling the internet for use. That was who contacted me. You know, that's right. Head. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That what happens with sites? Because I've seen where, you know, there's sites where it's free images, but sometimes it, there's one I was looking at for a client and it was free music. But when I looked into the terms and conditions, specifically, we couldn't use it for a podcast, which is what we wanted it for, but only when you went into the details. So a copyright that isn't necessarily blanket or something that's free isn't necessarily blanket. Would that be right as well? That's absolutely right. I could compare this to a pizza or I could use the kind of the older legal illustration, the bundle of sticks. So, you know, copyrights and trademarks, these are all property rights. And, you know, there's, there, there's not just one monolithic attribute to them you know, in terms of what you can do with it as the owner and what you can share with other people. So as you indicated, Paul, you may find a song that is free for you to download, but it's free for you to, that limitation or that permission may be limited to you for your personal enjoyment and listening at home, you know, with your feet kicked up, but it explicitly, or maybe not so explicitly tells you're not permitted to use this song for your podcast, or you're not permitted to sell this song or 
I mean, and there's so many different things. You may not be permitted to use it in connection with a live concert. I mean, the, you have to be very careful. And I'm glad that you reviewed the terms and conditions because it may be a step further than just saying, oh, it's on site that I'm allowed to download things from. Okay, be careful. What are you allowed to download it and use it for? Right. And that would be extending that. So if you're a speaker and you're coming on to a stage and you're using a piece of music to walk on stage with. Right. That's absolutely you, right. You have to make sure you actually own or have permission to use that for that purpose. That's right. And right. The, the another thing that we run into is issues with co commercial use, you know, and a lot of people are quick right. to say, well, I didn't make any money from it. And it's not so, it's not so simple as did I sell tickets? Did I sell copies of this song or this piece of art? You know, you, if you use it in connection with your business, I mean, you and I are both here in connection with our businesses, you know, and so the right owner of these images or music, they would probably argue that, okay, well, if you use the song in connection with this podcast as an extension of your brand, your business, you know, you may not have sold the podcast or sold, made revenue from it, but, uh, and, you know, regardless, but the fact is you're using in connection with your business, not just your personal use. You just have to be very careful. And do you recommend getting written permission versus verbal? Oh, absolutely. Ab right. Absolutely. It's a lot easier to defend yourself and to make your case by saying, here's the written agreement that we have, or here's the email, here's the permission in writing that I can turn to than saying, well, we had a conversation because everyone, our memories are funny things. You know, we, they become fuzzy <laughs> over time. We, maybe we remember things differently than one another. And that, that can lead to an extensive battle. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about you know, the people listening. A lot of people listening are real estate investors. So if we had a real estate investor that developed some kind of unique way of flipping properties, should we hmm. say, put that out into a, some kind of, here are the steps to successfully flip a property and get X or whatever. That's something that they could then copyright? Uh, they could potentially copyright and they could potentially trademark it. And let me explain. So they may write the steps down or they may record, you know, into a microphone, you know, how they're, my microphone's not showing up, but, you know, they may record them speaking the steps. They may have a video recording of the steps and the copyright would protect the the written document, it would protect the audio recording, it would protect the video recording to prevent someone from making copies or derivative works of the written document, the audio recording or video recording. But it would not prevent people from carrying out those steps mm. or talking about those steps. Does that make, right. make sense? Okay. There, there's a case here in the United States from a few years ago that I think is pretty interesting involving Bikram yoga. I think if I recall correctly, I think Bikram was the name of this yogi, you know, who right. led these classes and he was in Los Angeles. And my understanding is that like a thousand plus people would come to these yoga sessions are really remarkable, very popular. And he had, I think he had 12 poses that he would work through in sequence over the course of the yoga session. And people started selling video classes, not of you know, no one walked in with a video camcorder into his session, but people at home would say, okay, here's the Bikram method, or here's my method, here are the 12 steps. And they just so happened to be the 12 poses 
that he included in his yoga session. And he sued for copyright infringement. And said, well, those are my poses. I, I used my creativity to develop this sequence of poses and no one should be able to copy them. Mm. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the appellate court in California and largely the West Coast, said, yes, it would have prevented people from copying your videos, but you don't have copyrights don't protect the sequence of poses that you developed. And so there's a distinction there between what, how far does the copyright extend? The other thing in terms of the real estate, you know, the method of performing these steps, you know, so let's say the Burr method, you know, you know like, can I get them all correctly? Buy, rehab, rent, or refinance and repeat, right? Yep. So, so Burr method. Whoever came up with the name of the Burr method originally may have been able to trademark that. You know, it was a new term. It's kind of clever, you know, B or, you know, a bunch of R's following the B. And th that could have had some trademark significance. You know, if they were the only person teaching or performing the Burr method, they could potentially could have stopped other people from using that name. Now, at mm -hmm. this point, I think the Burr method is so widely used yeah, in a non-trademark sense. It's probably become generic that it probably has lost, I suspect it has lost its, its trademark significance. But if someone came along, uh, you know, let's say David Green from Bigger Pod Pockets, he says, this is the David Green Burr method. And he changes it up a little bit. And the only person who performs the David Green Burr method is David Green. And he takes steps to distinguish himself and make that a source identifier. That could have trademark significance. And so if, the, if, our, if your listeners develop methods or techniques in real estate, in acquisition, management, disposition, you know, whatever it may be that are unique to them. They promote it. Maybe it's part of a teaching program or a coaching program. Then they could trademark those things potentially. They have to have some, they have to be distinctive uh, or should be, but they may be able to protect them, prevent other people from using those names. And so something's just occurred to me. So if I came up with a unique way of renting short-term rental properties, but I called it Paul Copcut's seven success factors to renting Airbnb. I'm using somebody else's trademark within my trademark. Is that, and that would be a conflict. I wouldn't, Airbnb could potentially come back and say, no, you can't do that. Because oh, I see. Cause you're using Airbnb. Yeah. That's a tough one because right. there, there's a, there's a defense in trademark and copyright law called fair use. And they're different in how they apply, but there's some similar themes. In trademark law, you can use someone else's trademark law for generally for two purposes. To geographically describe where something is located. We are located next to, I was going to use Sears, you know, we're located next door to Tim Hortons. And, right. and which I love Tim Hortons, by the way. <laughs> we're located next door to Tim Hortons. That's fine. You're not telling people you are Tim Hortons. You're not telling people that you're endorsed by or affiliated with Tim Hortons. You're just saying where you are located. Now, it gets dicey if you start using Tim Hortons' logo and other aspects of Tim Hortons' branding to make that representation because the argument is you really only needed to do the bare minimum, which is probably just say Tim Hortons' name. The other use is similar you know, let's say comparative advertising or compatible with. So I don't remember because this iPhone is so old, but when I bought my Otter box, you know, the case for it, I imagine that the box said compatible with Apple iPhones 
right. you know, eight, nine, and 10 or, or whatever the case was. Now, Otterbox, that company may want to be extra careful and get Apple's blessings, but typically that's okay, you know, to say we are compatible with this product. So in the case of that, your Airbnb example, you'd want to make sure that you're being very explicit, that you're not saying that you're Airbnb or that you're affiliated or sponsored with anything like that, but that you, ha- you help people with their Airbnb businesses. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because Airbnb is almost the Kleenex of short-term rentals, isn't it? It's Don't tell them of, that. <laughs> but it's become the generic almost. Generic. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What about and I'm sure this is all very new for trademark patent lawyers like yourself, Nick, but what's happening with chat GPT and things like AI? Because all of a sudden, there's content that's being produced, mass produced, and you don't, most of the time, you're not knowing where even chat GPT or AI tools are pulling this from. Oh, Paul, how many hours do you have? So <laughs> that, is the, that is a hot topic right now in intellectual right. property law and dealing with AI. And the different intellectual property regimes, so to speak, you know, trademark, patents, copyrights, it, there's some similar themes, but they play out a little bit differently or they're starting to play out a little bit differently. So for example, copyright protection, at least in the United States, and I suspect, I think in most countries, is reserved for artistic works created by humans. So there was a case several, probably five to 10 years ago, and I don't recall if it went to the Supreme Court or if it went to one of the appellate courts. It may have been a trial court, but it was interesting because, and you might even remember the photograph of a, I can't remember if it was a chimpanzee or another ape that had taken a photo of itself holding a flower or something. You've probably seen the photograph. Right. And the owner of the photograph said, we have copyright protection in this photo. We don't want people sharing it and taking it. And copyright protection doesn't work that way. It doesn't work. And the court ultimately said this photograph was not taken by a person. It was taken by an ape, by an animal, a non-human animal. And so no copyright protection. Now, had the owner of the camera or whoever was, whoever ultimately took the, had the photo, if they edited it and did things to the cop- to the photo, they may have had copyrights in the edited form, you know, or the revised form because it was a derivative work. And now that derivative work has copyright significance of its own. But the underlying photograph taken by the monkey, not, not enough to establish copyright protection. And I, you know, I'm, I need to pay closer attention to how the AI cases are developing with copyright. But my impression and my hunch is that we're going to see a lot of the same thing is that, you know, computers, and, and there already are cases that saying computers creating more computer, computer materials is not copyrightable. So I think that's going to continue to stick. Interesting. Um, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think it's, I could just see it being pushed all the way to get tested at some point. And it, right, that's right. And with respect to patents, I think there's two different issues. What about inventions that humans create related to AI versus perhaps new inventions that are created through AI? And I think in the, in the former category, inventions that humans create, I think that they meet other requirements for patentable subject matter. They're probably still, they're still going to be subject to patent protection potentially. But materials that are created from 
AI, you know, a computer creates the invention. I'm less confident in that. In fact, I would probably lean towards those are not going to be protectable through patents because one of the requirements patents is that there's an inventor. Well, who's the inventor? And I, I suspect the analysis is going to look a lot like the copyright side of things. Is copyright, you need a human to take the photograph or to create the work. Who's the inventor? And inventors under patent law can't be organizations. You know, a Tim Hortons can't invent, I mean, Tim Horton could have, but Tim Hortons can't invent a new technology. Tim Hortons employees can. So that will be interesting to see. As far as trademarks, I think we're going to see something slightly different. Trade, because trademarks are fundamentally different than patents and copyrights. Patents and copyrights are intended to, to encourage and promote innovation and creativity, the arts. Trademarks are really a consumer protection. The idea being that if a consumer goes to a, I need to stop picking on Tim Hortons. <laughs> if, a, if, if a consumer goes to a Cirque, de Soleil, a Cirque du Soleil show in a Montreal versus Las Vegas, they should have a certain expectation of the quality, what to expect. And if, someone, if there's an infringer or someone who's not associated with Cirque du Soleil, who's putting on a show using similar marks, there's customer confusion. And so while trademarks protect brand owners, you know, to prevent confusion, they also intended to protect consumers, you know, to make sure that they're getting consistency among the goods and services from the brand owners. So I think that as far as AI created, that leads to trademarks. I think the analysis is going to be a little bit different. And that's why brands like strong brands are very protective about if somebody, if they're out licensing or outsourcing, mm. they're very, very protective around if somebody else is delivering their service or product, like franchises, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. Like a that's importance. A, yeah, that's absolutely right. When you're a, a trademark owner and you license your trademarks to third parties, you have a duty to police. Or no, well, you do have, as a trademark owner, you do have a duty to police and enforce your trademarks. But with respect to licenses, you, your license has to provide for quality control and you have to exercise quality control of your licensees. You know, there's some brands that I really like that I've bought products from that I'm sure the brand owner wasn't manufacturing, but they had a licensee and the licensed products were garbage. You know, they break within a couple of weeks and it impacts your impression of the brand. You know, I'll, Sorry to throw people under the bus, but I used to do triathlons and I would do the Ironman branded races. And I bought a pair of Ironman branded sunglasses, an Ironman branded watch. Both of them broke very quickly. And I had a sour taste about Ironman. And at that point, I just decided I'm not going to buy more of their products because they're not exercising quality control. Great, great, great example. And what is the lifetime of a copyright, of a patent, of a trademark? How long does it apply to a particular piece of content or a product? Or So this very much jurisdiction specific, and I don't know the answers in Canada, but in the United States, patents fall into two categories. Design patents, which protect the way something looks. So this fountain pen, uh, this, it's Laney, Lamy fountain pen. You know, operationally, it's much like most fountain pens. But the look of it has very distinct look. At some point, there may have been a design patent on it. If you obtain a design patent, the patent lasts for 15 years. No maintenance fees, that's life, 15 years. Utility patents, which protect features, 
you know, I'm claiming the combination of X, Y, and Z. Your a utility patent in the United States lasts for 20 years, assuming that you pay maintenance fees. And so the patent office expects you to pay fees every several years during the life of the patent. And if you do so, it'll last for 20 years. Copyrights, it it varies depending on the circumstances, which when was it created and under what copyright act. But the short answer that you tell most people is it's the life of the author plus 70 years. Okay. And so that means that if a child prodigy creates a copyrightable work when he or she is five years old, lives to be 100 years old, then the copyright will last another 70 years after the death of that child prodigy. So potentially in that case, 165 years, I guess, because the 95 plus 70, that's high level, that's copyright length. A long time, but not forever. The, and I won't get into Disney, but there's interesting issues that are rising in the fairly near future with, with Mickey Mouse. And I think there's, yeah, actually one of my, my, one of my kids was telling me this with a steamboat, the steamboat Willie image. That's right. And so I think clarify that issue. I think people have a misunderstanding. I think people hear that Mickey Mouse is going to enter the public domain and they think of Mickey with the red shorts and, you know, Mickey and Fantasia with the wizards had, you know, thinking that the, those images of Mickey are entering public domain. No, they are not now or not in the near future. It's the Steamboat Willie images of Mickey Mouse that are entering the public domain. And as far as copyright is concerned, but what's going to be interesting to see is how does Disney handle Mickey Mouse from a trademark standpoint? So even though Steamboat Willie is, is going to enter the public domain in the near future, I think Disney's done a pretty good job of using Mickey Mouse as a, as a trademark, or I maybe not even go so far as say good job. They've made an effort. You know, they've made an effort to use Mickey Mouse or Steamboat Willie as a trademark. You know, when you watch a lot of Disney content currently during the opening credits, they'll show mon- video montages of Steamboat Willie. And so they'll be curious to see what happens with that. As far as trademarks last forever, so long as you continue to use the trademarks. The surefire way to lose your trademark rights is to abandon your trademarks. And that can occur through non-use. You stop using the trademark or failing to use your, failing to police your trademarks and allowing third parties to use your trademarks. And like you said, clean at the Kleenex example, you know, becomes generic. But if you protect your trademarks, you use them, they can last forever. And so a, a creative real estate investor comes up with a new burr, whatever that becomes. How do they check whether that has already been used? Or is being or is in use by somebody else. So a good a good practice when it comes to, to to trademarks when adopting a trademark, whether you have intentions of registering or not, if you just if you simply want to use a trademark, is to do a clearance search. And I think before you even talk to an attorney, it's probably a good idea to get on Google, get on social media, search the name. Are you seeing results come up and? If everyone's using it in kind of a generic sense, okay, it's probably not going to be trademarked, but you're probably not going to get in trouble with someone else. But if you see that there's one or two parties doing something similar or, you know, in the same industry space, another real estate investor using the name, then you might be stepping on their toes and that could be problematic. So it's it probably on 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 their end 
you know, do an initial search to see what's out there. Yeah, as you get more serious and more confident in this thing, it's probably then worth visiting and consulting with the trademark attorney to perform a formal, formal search. You know, in, in my case, I would search the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. A Canadian attorney might check the Canadian office. And to see, are, is this mark or similar marks being used? One thing that is challenging and maybe counterintuitive to some is some people think, well, no one's using the exact same mark, you know, at the trademark office or online. And I asked them, well, are you aware of someone using a similar mark? What do you mean similar mark? Well, maybe instead of an S, did they use a Z, you know, or maybe, maybe that there's some other misspelling or something similar, but otherwise it reads the same or it sounds similar or it's just, it's similar for one reason or another. Those are things to look out for. And that's saying that a trademark attorney can help with because, you know, with experience, you get a sense for, okay, this is similar. Now this isn't all that. Similar. Right. That makes a ton of sense. And how do people use intellectual property in their business? What are the kind of things that people can use it for? Uh, so when you ask that, Paul, are you referring to like in a legal sense, how do they enforce, protect and enforce or defend? Or are you saying like, how do they use it to build their business and to operate? Probably both. So how do they build their business? And then how do they ensure that somebody else doesn't start using it? So in terms of, I guess, distinguish the copyrights and patents from the trademarks. Again, thinking to copyrights and patents in terms of promotion of innovation and creativity. If your business is going to be built on something innovative or creative, then having intellectual property can help you grow that and legally can help you build the moat. You know, I don't know if you ever watched Shark Tank or Dragon's Den, or I don't know if there's a Canadian version. There's the... Canadian's Dragon's Den, yeah. Okay. One of the questions they're always asking is, well, do you have any patents? Do you have copyrights? What are you doing to distinct set yourself apart so that people can't get close to you? You know, that there's a lot of value in that. And so that's something to be thinking about early and often as your business grows, is what are the things that are interesting? What are the things that give you a competitive edge? And how can you use intellectual property to, to, to set you apart? As far as trademarks, trademarks may be the things that, okay, you're doing things that set you apart. Now, what name, logo, and other branding are you using so that people recognize you? That's where the trademarks fit in. And so it's not uncommon for clients to say, Nick, can we get a patent on this? We have this idea for this software or something, and we're talking about it. And Maybe cost-wise, a patent doesn't make sense. Maybe it's too expensive. Or maybe we don't think that they're likely to get a patent or a particularly broad patent. For whatever reason, we just said, maybe patent doesn't make sense. And, you know, head, you know, head down. Okay, I, I guess I'll take my things. I said, but wait, have you thought about trademarks? You know, you may be the first business in this to develop this industry niche or to, to in this industry at all. And if you're the first to market, that has value. And if you, if that's the case, you really want trademarks to distinguish yourself so that people don't confuse you. Yeah. I've never looked at Uber's patent portfolio, but I would venture to guess that it's probably not as broad and robust as maybe some people might think. You know, we call Uber a tech company, but you know, Uber's a, it's a taxi, taxi company, you know, that's more tech savvy. And so I, I don't know how many patents they have, if any, maybe a lot, but let's assume that they have few, if none. I would venture to guess that Uber's biggest asset, probably even more than any patents that it owns, is its trademarks. 
You know, I think people forget that in the United States, and I suspect in Canada, it's similar. In the United States, there's a, quite a few ride-sharing companies. It's not just Uber. It's not just Lyft. But if you ask people, what ride-sharing companies can you name? Most people are going to name two companies. And it's because those two built, established market, strong market share. They were really first to market for the most part, and they build strong brands. And so that's the thing that helps set them apart and grow. And so I think some people are quick to dismiss or don't even consider trademarks when that ultimately may be the biggest asset that they'll ever have. So there, there's a lot of value there. And somebody like a real estate investor that wants to differentiate themselves and maybe they're, say, the friendliest real estate investor or the, the most honest real estate investor, is that something that could be trademarked or is that something that you're starting to stretch things? Because I've seen it with realtors where they've said, mm -hmm. you know, Canada's number one selling, you know, or the number one salesman or salesperson. And you think, well, and that sort of thing you have to be careful about that you're not making, you're not going to make false advertising. You know, if you right. start saying number one salesman, well, how do you back that up? Right. So you got to be careful with that. In terms of kind of laudatory terms, friendliest, most helpful, they might be protectable via trademarks. It just depends. It depends. Are others using similar taglines? They may be, it may be highly descriptive and not as distinctive. So maybe you can protect it, but it may be hard to enforce because it's not as strong and distinctive. So that's something to be careful about. But, you know, th that brings me to the issue of the trademark spectrum and error continuum. Not all trademarks are created equally. If, if someone handed out a business card and, they, and it said real estate investor, does that tell you who it is or where their business card came from? No. It tells you what they do. It's generic. And so it has no trademarks. Similarly, if I plopped a, well, here we go. I have an apple in front of me. If I put a piece of tape on it or wrote Apple, it doesn't tell you where it came from. It just tells you what it is. On the other end of the spectrum, you have fanciful marks like Exxon, Kodak, Polaroid. These are fictitious, made-up words. Their only significance is that they have is that they're trademarks. Those are ideally those are the best kind of trademarks because you're setting yourself out apart from the very beginning and with a made-up word. Close to fairly strong as well, or arbitrary terms. So like Apple, but not for this, the, the fruit, for this, my phone. You know, it's a real word, but it's used outside of its traditional context. It's arbitrary. Those are great trademarks as well. There's other terms in the in categories in the middle. For example, there's suggestive marks like copper tone for sunscreen. It's, it's clever. You know, you hear the term, you don't immediately know what copper tone is, but if someone tells you, you think, like, aha, I, I get it. It's clever. Those are suggestive terms. Not as good as the arbitrary and fanciful, but they're good. And then in between suggestive and generic are descriptive terms. It may be descriptive because it says geographically where it comes from. Toronto, Toronto realtors. It, the real, or real estate agents. Let's say realtor is a trademark. Toronto real estate agents. Real estate agents is generic, but Toronto is geographically descriptive. Okay. The, it could be descriptive because it describes an attribute. So tasty apples, tasty is descriptive of the attribute or a juice that is apple flavored or apple, apple juices. Something you're characterizing as apple flavored. That's an attribute of it. So it's descriptive. 
not the strongest, but there can be some significance there. So for people who are thinking about adopting trademarks, I would encourage them consider trademarks that are fanciful or arbitrary. They're easier to protect. They're easier to assert. And it's easier to, it's easier to build a brand around a distinctive trademark than a trademark that's descriptive. Hmm. That, you've already made me think about that because that's, that's an interesting perspective from that. So something, and I heard somewhere years ago, and I don't know if it's true, but every domain of seven letters or less is not, no longer available. And it's pro- that probably can't be true because you could make up some kind of word. But It uh, could be. Yeah. I heard probably a year ago that there are no four-letter four domain names, at least on .com basis, for sale that are, maybe it was for sale or for sale under, and it was some steep number. You know, I mean, even the XXY or, you know, those, I mean, very steep. And I mean, seven characters, it's really not that much. So, I mean, it's, that's possible. A couple of questions I'd like to ask guests before we kind of wrap up and let people know where they can find you and get more information. Sure thing. Who do you like as a personal brand and individual and why? So I, I could interpret this a few different ways, Paul. In terms of personally, who do I really like? There's probably some more local people who I really admire and who I think have built great brands, but your listeners may not necessarily recognize them. But I think for bigger brands that I like and appreciate for different reasons, I have a few. I think Uncle G or Grant Cardone is very interesting. I think, you know, his vibrato and intensity is infectious. You know, I think there's a lot of, there's something to be said for that. Tony Robbins, you know, a classic, he's very much motivating. And another brand that I really is Robert Kiyosaki and Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And something that I think that, that Robert Kiyosaki does very well is that he's able to, he's able to have built a brand in his own name as well as Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm. That is really hard to do. And I don't think I appreciated how hard it was until I started my own personal brand development. You know, I thought, oh, I'll name, I'm going to mention this book in a minute, but you know, yeah, I got yeah. a book. And I thought, okay, I'm going to give it an imprint. I'm going to call it Coral Reef IP. And I've been, you know, I went through an exercise to come up with that name and to brand it. But then as I started thinking about this, okay, I only have so much listener or reader attention to try to push Coral Reef IP and Nick Gwynn. That's hard to do. And so the fact that Robert Kiyosaki has done it, I mean, it's, it's impressive. That's a really good example. I love that you use that. And of course, Rich Dad Poor Dad is a trademark, isn't it? Because he's mm-hmm. used that right across programs and books and anything and everything. So that is. And so is the, what's the quadrant called? The uh, oh. fi- financial quadrant or the, yeah. Yeah. They, he's trademarked that. He's been pretty good with protecting his brand. Yeah. That's a good, very good example. What about a favorite book or podcast? Well, I've kind of set this up. I, I'm a huge fan of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It, it really opened my eyes to a lot. Another book that you know, widely know, but maybe not as many people have read it today, is How to Win Friends and Influence People. You know, I know kind of like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, there's a lot of people who give it flat, you know, and for different reasons. I think on the How to Win Friends and Influence People say, oh, you know, it's just, it's a salesman's book. But I think it's so much more than that. I think it really teaches you a lot about how to connect with people, how to take interest in other people, not just yourself. And I think there's a lot of value. Definitely. I'm just reaching behind on my bookshelf because I have a 1932 version. Oh, 
fantastic. Of how to win friends and influence people. So it's, it's a great book. Yeah. I'd put that in a top, you know, if you're going to read five books, that would definitely be there for sure. What about a piece of technology that you're enjoying using at the moment? So I'm, I'll confess, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> there is an, I don't know if it's technically an app or a software, text expander. Um, someone recommended to me early in the pandemic, they were giving a, a presentation to a group of us about technology that they could use in the practice of law. But it, I mean, it's not just for lawyers. It's for anyone who sends emails or sends routine communications. You know, it's amazing some of the, communications that you send it several times a week or even several times a day. And, you know, you don't feel like you're taking much time to send it, but the change in attention and focus to think about it, getting it right, it adds up. And so Text Expander allows you to create templates. And rather than having to go to an old email and copy and paste that example, you have a code. So for example, okay, anytime I want to send an engagement letter to someone, Rather than having to type that three paragraph email that I sent, I can just type C Z J Q colon or something, you know, and it's a code that my keyboard and the computer recognizes. And then there I have it. I have my template and I can send the email so much faster. I say, do as I say, not as I do, because I've been slow to incorporate it. But when I use it, I always think, man, why am I not using this? That's a good one. Excellent. And do you have a favorite quote that inspires or motivates you? I've got a lot of quotes that I like. The one that I that came to mind, I guess, because I, I recently visited Europe and saw, went to some art museums. I, I love Van Gogh. And this, I like this quote. I think, I think people who are entrepreneurs, real estate investors can all appreciate this. If you hear a voice within you say you cannot paint, then by all means, paint and that voice will be silenced. Hmm, I like that. Wonderful. So you mentioned a book, Nick. So tell us about your book and then also where people can find you and get in touch. Thank you, Paul. So I, last year, I wrote and published a book, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Trademarks, in the subtitle, Essential Guide for All Online Businesses. Candidly, anyone, could, anyone who's a business owner, a brand owner, or works with branding could read this book, enjoy, and benefit from it. The subtitle directed to online businesses, some of the hypotheticals are directed towards online businesses, but the overall issues and can be shared by others. The, it's a short read. I don't know if you can see how thick the spine is. <laughs> it's written that way by design. I know we all pick up books that are hundreds of pages long with great intentions to read them right away and it never happens. Most people could read this book in an hour or two hours, depending on how quickly you read. It's intended to be fun. Well, maybe not fun. It depends on who you are. Hey. Easy read and helpful. Gets to the point. Issues aren't repeated 30 times to fill up pages. It's just, it's quick read. It's available on Amazon. I think some of the other online retailers have relationships with Amazon. So I think you could find it on barnesandnobles.com, but principally Amazon. And if people want to get a hold of me, they can go to my personal website, nickgwin.com. My last name is G-U-I-N-N. I also have social media platforms, Nick Gwynn, IP attorney, both on Facebook and Instagram, a YouTube channel that's emerging. And uh, yeah, that's it. Okay, wonderful. We'll make sure all of that is in the show notes. And the book sounds like a good, because I'm kind of sensing from our conversation that for real estate investors and related professionals, the trademark route is definitely one that they want to be thinking about quite seriously. I if, think so. 
Yeah. You know, for someone who has long-term rentals, don't doesn't necessarily give them names or flipping homes, maybe their company that they're using that's interfacing with contractors or folks, maybe that's there's some branding there. The long-term rental, that, that may be a little bit harder to see. But someone who's doing Airbnbs and they want to stand out. I remember a few years ago, I stayed at an Airbnb called Alley Cat. That Alley Cat is a trademark for that, for that Airbnb host. I don't know if they've registered it or not, but, but when I hear Alley Cat, I think of that Airbnb. Good point. Wonderful. Well, Nick, thank you for your time today. A really interesting conversation. You've got me thinking about things and then you've also kind of clarified some things for people, I'm sure. So it was a really great conversation and have yourself a brandtastic day. Well, my, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Paul. Well, was that brandtastic? Did it give you some ideas and actions that you can take right now to build your business? So get to it. Thank you for listening and have a brandtastic day.